from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, delayed intraocular foreign body removal during operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. As far as the specific circumstances in getting each individual soldier, it, you know, it would vary by the individual case, what it specifically is injured, what, how extensive their injuries are, whether or not they have orthopedic or neurosurgical or uh, ENT, general surgery, what type of other issues they have, but they would get evacuated to a deployed ophthalmologist. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Collier declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. No single department of ophthalmology has the best lecturers in every field. Open Ophthalmology is a meta-school in which lecturers from different departments have access to ophthalmology residents everywhere. I've seeded this marketplace of ideas with my own course on clinical optics. Who's your department's best lecturer? Let me know and come visit us at openophthalmology.com. Open Ophthalmology. Let a hundred flowers bloom. It's not always possible to perform the definitive surgical repair when an injury occurs in a theater of conflict. When a soldier in Iraq suffers an intraocular foreign body, what happens? If removal of the intraocular foreign body is delayed, what are the sequelae? Marcus Collier of the Walter Reed Army Medical Center has just published results of a study examining this question. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Collier as my guest today. How common are intraocular foreign bodies as injuries? They account for uh, about 25% of all the ocular injuries we've seen in Iraq. And are ocular injuries common in general as far as injuries in Iraq? Uh, they, it's difficult to quantify because the, the schemes that have been created uh, to document uh, injuries don't document ocular injuries as its own isolated uh, injury pattern. So uh, ocular injuries are included in the head and neck uh, during the initial survey and are classified as such uh, by the Department of Defense. So the only uh, data we're able to gather is of those that is which has already been uh, retrospectively reviewed uh, within this study. One of the things you make reference to in the paper is eye armor. What is that? Eye armor would be any uh, form of polycarbonate eye protection. Uh, we broadly use the term in order to give the soldiers any opportunity to use whatever necessary to cover their eyes. Uh, previously, military had mandated to use a certain type of uh, protection that, you know, if it were a pair of goggles or other uh, such devices that looked unsightly, uh, patient, uh, soldiers were more were less likely to wear it. So uh, we have re- tried to remove the mandate to uh, specifically name a type of eye protection to wear, but have broadly stated eye armor is any form of polycarbonate eye protection. Most commonly, uh, the soldiers are wearing either Wiley X or Oakley uh, type of sunglasses that have wraparound shades to kind of protect the side of the eye as well as uh, underneath the eye. Prior to this paper, how important was early extraction of uh, intraocular foreign bodies felt to be? 
Um, you know, that's a highly controversial topic, uh, and I think in many realms there's been multiple multiple studies that have looked at uh, this topic, and every study, you know, all of them generally being retrospective types, uh, probably achieved their hypothesis by saying that, you know, one study would say early is better, another would say later is better. Um, so traditionally, surgeons have gone in immediately uh, or within the first few days to remove a foreign body. In practical terms, I imagine that it's difficult to get someone from the site of an injury uh, to an ophthalmic operating room. What happens when a soldier is injured? Generally, as soon as a patient's injured, they are immediately evacuated to the nearest uh, treatment facility that has an ophthalmologist. as far as the specific circumstances in getting each individual soldier, it, you know, it would vary by the individual case, what it specifically is injured, what, how extensive their injuries are, whether or not they have orthopedic or neurosurgical or uh, ENT, general surgery, what type of other issues they have. But they would get evacuated to a deployed ophthalmologist, uh, which of, of which there are currently two in Iraq and have been that way for at least a couple of years uh, there had been as many as three at some points, but uh, generally the evacuation system has enabled a patient to be seen and evaluated by an ophthalmologist within hours of injury with a repair generally done within the first six to 12 hours following an injury. Now, the repair at that point constitutes just closure, right? Not extraction of the intraocular foreign body. Correct. The the, uh, deployed ophthalmologist's role is to explore the wound, wash out any obvious uh, foreign material, and then do a adequate primary closure of any uh, scleral wounds uh, or corneal wounds that exist. I imagine that soldiers with ocular injuries typically have other injuries as well. Correct. The exact numbers of that we didn't really look at in this study. I could estimate that roughly uh, one-third of all patients, and that would be a conservative estimate, probably more like uh, a half to two-thirds have some form of other systemic injury, some being minor uh, foreign body type wounds, some being as as significant as uh, intracranial uh, fragments requiring uh, craniotomies and extensive neurosurgical uh, debridement procedures. Marcus, can I have you describe the design of this study? This study was a retrospective, uh, non-comparative, consecutive uh, interventional case series of this all 79 intraocular form bodies that were uh, seen and intra intraocular form body patients who were seen and evaluated by the Walter Reed Ophthalmology uh, Service uh, during a period extending from. Uh, March of 2003 through, I believe, October of 2005 is when we uh, ended the uh, study interval. What parameters were measured as part of this study? The main outcome measures were uh, post-operative visual acuity, uh, rates of proliferative vitreal retinopathy, as well as any uh, documentation of any uh, endophthalmitis uh, that may or may not have occurred in any of the 79 cases. What were the main outcome measures? Uh, the, the well, the, those were the sorry, those were the main outcome measures. The the study measures uh, included initial visual acuity, 
location of the foreign body uh, entrance wound, uh, whether it included the cornea, the limbus, or the posterior sclera, uh, then any additional injuries within the eye, uh, so cataract, vitreous hemorrhage, whether or not there was any retinal tear detachment, perforation site. Uh, a term we used uh, was chorioretinal disruption, which um, encompassed numerous other potential diagnoses such as a retinal artery vein occlusion, uh, subretinal hemorrhage, um, uh, multiple different things that kind of were nondescript and only were based on the operating surgeon's description at the time of surgery. Um, also, traumatic optic neuropathy, um, the presence of a psychodialysis or a retinal dialysis, sorry, retinal dialysis. Can I get you to describe the study population and the nature of the injuries that they had? Um, the study population was of deployed United States Army uh, military soldiers, so all previously healthy patients who sustained uh, a retained intraocular form body uh, from combat ocular trauma uh, during the study period. We did not exclude any patients who had no light perception. Uh, we, we essentially included everyone uh, that came to us that still had an eye and still had a foreign body within the eye. The only patients that were not included were patients who had foreign bodies in the eye and had a primary enucleation in Iraq. We did not include those in the study. Now, the nature of the injuries were, were shrapnel injuries or debris that, 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 was, that was kicked up that wound up as intraocular foreign bodies. What, 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 what was the material of the intraocular foreign bodies that, that you saw? They're largely in about four categories. So metallic foreign bodies from uh, shrapnel fragments, glass uh, from either pieces of, um, well, I can't really say, I don't know where, where the glass would come from. Uh, stone foreign bodies, most likely ricochet type pattern. There were also autologous foreign bodies, so a bone or cilia uh, were another type. So mainly four types of uh, foreign bodies. What were your findings, Marcus? The first finding was that um, we had no endophthalmitis during the study period. Uh, and I can say outside of the study, we still have yet to have a case of endophthalmitis associated with an intraocular foreign body. Uh, but in this, within the study, there were 79 eyes and no patients with endophthalmitis. That would be, the, uh, to date, the largest uh, retrospective non-comparative study that did not uh, have endophthalmitis. The prior, I think, had was a, a series of 63 eyes. Um, the second uh, main uh, finding was that our rates of proliferative vitreal retinopathy uh, were similar to rates published previously in the literature. Uh, our number was uh, about 20% uh, with all takers, with, depending on how you looked at subgroups, uh, the, more, the severest injury patients uh, had the highest rate of proliferative vitreal retinopathy, uh, those patients having five or more intraocular injuries um, versus those with less than five only had about a 5% rate of endophthalmitis. Um, and lastly, our visual acuity outcomes were similar to those uh, previously uh, published uh, with about 60% uh, of patients seeing better than 2040 uh, on last exam, last follow-up exam. 
How many of these patients were wearing eye protection? It's actually a difficult number to quantify, mostly because the patients, uh, when they first arrived, couldn't tell us whether they were wearing it or not. And in the deployed setting, there wasn't ever any documentation specifically whether that patient was wearing it or not. Um, so the number is actually low, uh, but lower than probably is in reality. I think our number was 20% of patients were wearing eye protection at the time of injury, so 80% were not or could not document the use of eye protection. But th- those numbers are somewhat rough uh, because of the problems uh, in obtaining a accurate history. What was the average time from injury to the definitive surgical treatment? Uh, the average time in our patient population was 21 days from the time they were injured to the time the foreign body was removed. Uh, time to primary closure, like I said before, was probably about uh, 6 to 12 hours following an injury. Were all of the foreign bodies extracted or did you choose to leave some in situ? I believe only five patients uh, of the patients who underwent vitrectomy or had retained foreign bodies with and were surgical candidates for uh, removal. Only f- uh, five patients refused uh, foreign body removal. We offered f- to every patient, but uh, in the five uh, patients, they had either stone, glass, or other inert uh, foreign bodies and uh, had deferred further surgical cor- uh, removal. How did you evaluate the toxicity induced by the foreign body? Uh, they were, patients were followed with serial electroretinograms as well as visual acuity uh, measurements. They were seen uh, periodically after the study period was over uh, and also within the study period uh, to document stability of vision in that eye and the other eye as well as uh, any signs of siderosis uh, or other signs of ocular toxicity. But electroretinograms were uh, generally performed at three to six month intervals. Did the type of foreign body serve as a predictor of the outcome? No, there was no association between type of foreign body and outcome. Now, getting back to something that you said earlier, what does this study tell us about endophthalmitis in delayed extraction of intraocular foreign bodies? Unfortunately, with this study, like any retrospective study, it's unable to really ascertain how this patient population did not get endophthalmitis. It, it can merely state what these patients, what the general trend was in these patients in, in not having it. You know, what, what type of uh, interventions did we do or not do that uh, may account for the absence. In our patients, uh, they all were on a topical fourth generation, third or fourth generation quinolone, uh, most commonly Vigamox, as well as an oral fluoroquinolone, uh, most commonly levofloxacin. Um, several patients had other IV antibiotics, PO antibiotics, uh, and topical antibiotics, but generally uh, speaking, um, an oral and a an, uh, topical fluoroquinolone agent. I can say that 97% of patients had some form of antibiotic coverage with approximately 80% receiving uh, topical and about 50% receiving uh, an oral agent as well. Do you think that the trauma was special in the sense that the foreign bodies here were sterilized uh, by the nature of the inciting event? Um, that's an interesting 
argument, um, perhaps reason why uh, our patients did not have endophthalmitis. I think the argument against that logic is that if you look in other previously published studies describing foreign bodies in a combat setting, uh, there are several of which um, that, that we could refer to, they do have endophthalmitis associated with intraocular foreign bodies. Uh, the Vietnam War, there was a 5% rate. Uh, there's some stuff from the Iran-Iraq War. There's some uh, things published uh, from uh, the conflicts in uh, Bosnia. Um, so I don't think uh, we, ha we can say that the injuries were sterile, um, nor do I think that the penetration of the globe sterilized the eyelids, uh, the conjunctiva, or any other area which was still open uh, to the internal environment. How did PVR in your study population compare with those in, in, in previous studies in which the intraocular foreign bodies were removed after a shorter delay? Uh, our rates of PVR uh, were similar to those previously published, whether intervention was done sooner, later, um, or not compared. Uh, our patients um, with delayed uh, intervention had the opportunity to have a posterior vitreous detachment or an easier induction of posterior vitreous detachment during surgery, um, which presumably removes a potential inciting event for PVR uh, formation. The traditional uh, published rate of PVR is approximately 20% uh, from trauma and from IOFPs, and that's essentially what our uh, overall rate of PVR was. Um, if you look at some of the prior studies that discuss PVR and do subgroup analysis, they have similar uh, findings that would suggest um, severity of injury is what determines rate of PVR formation. Um, I think several studies have looked and uh, shown a trend towards higher PVR with more severe injuries. However, um, more severe injuries are more likely to be delayed in intervention. So it's a confounding variable uh, when you, if you isolate the, those two factors, if you, if you isolate time to surgery and severity of injury from one another, um, then, then it, I, I think that's may, partly what this study may show is that regardless of the severity of injury, delaying foreign body removal does not substantially increase the overall rate of uh, proliferative vitreal retinopathy. It's more the severity of injury that dictates who and who will not get PVR. Did many of these patients need corneal grafts? Uh, we had nine patients who required a uh, penetrating keratoplasty uh, with uh, temporary keratoprosthesis. How did these patients do postoperatively? Uh, they generally did poorly uh, with both high rates of uh, proliferative vitreal retinopathy and high rates of corneal graft failure, over 50% within each of those uh, endpoints. Now, having learned what you've learned from this study, what are your recommendations? We... Uh, do not use a uh, temporary keratoprosthesis or uh, penetrating keratoplasty uh, for any of our uh, intraocular foreign body removals if there is a clear enough view uh, 
in order to perform a primary vitrectomy and foreign body removal. If we cannot visualize the foreign body, that would be the only indication. Since we've uh, analyzed this data, I can say that we've done zero temporary, temporary chiroprosthesis and zero uh, primary uh, penetrating keratoplasties for these patients. But generally, with this population as a whole, and not, not just the penetrating keratoplasty patients, what are your recommendations? Oh, okay. Uh, so we schedule routine uh, surgery for our intraocular form body removals, uh, usually a week uh, after their arrival, um, so that we have the appropriate ophthalmology OR staffing as well as uh, anesthesia staffing to assist. Um, additionally, we avoid using keratoprosthesis, uh, uh, like I discussed, for their high rates of failure. And we are routinely giving uh, topical fourth-generation fluoroquinolone and oral levoquin uh, to all patients following uh, injury until seven days after foreign body removal. Marcus Collier, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate the uh, interest. Marcus Collier comes to us from the Department of Ophthalmology at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. His paper, Delayed Intraocular Foreign Body Removal Without Endophthalmitis During Operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom, is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Collier or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States-style area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom-dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.